Yeah. I don't even know what we're doing today. Oh, yeah. I didn't tell you. Um, I did crazy amounts of research on this case. And you know what? Actually, let me pull it up because I... I'm happy. I don't know who specifically suggested because there. I think there were multiple messages and people who were like, you should revisit this case because I covered it like a while ago. Um, but I'm really happy that we're going to resurface it for this because I think this is a story that we should continue to tell. It's one of those cases where it's it's kind of a mix between like there's mystery, it's unsolved, but also there's this overarching feeling that justice was never really served. Ooh. And that's that's kind of the vibe of like what we're getting into this with. And I think it's a case that's good to discuss. We are covering Mitrice Richardson. Do you know that case? I don't. So I'm, I'll give you a little top line. And then I promise I won't forget. I've got it in the back of my mind. I'm going to do our intro because I'm getting good at this. <laughs> no. I, was like, I was just going to say. <laughs> intro. No, 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 no. It's there. It's there. Don't worry. <laughs> Mama's prepared. Um, I'm going to give you a top line without giving away what actually happens in this story. But just to set this up, let's see. The strange story of Mitrice Richardson, it kind of leaves like a lot of the conversation around it out in the open because it has these key moments of the case that are really, really clouded with this feeling that something is very wrong here. Like we don't have the full story as... um, the public, I guess. There are many who cite this case as potentially being linked to like trafficking. It could have been a misconduct cover-up, or it could have even been as serious as deliberate, corrupt police work. And people still feel this way to this day. So this is really going to be a case where County is going to get I was thrown under that say. bus. Oh, thrown, <laughs> run over, backed up on. County is going to get through, going through the meat grinder bad. <laughs> oh my god. I I am so thrilled we're doing this. Wow. Yeah, it's it's really like county um defamation hour. Uh so the case <laughs> of Mitrice, it is one of the most unsettling, I think, in recent memory, because it was just in like 2009. And Mitrice went missing. And there's this bizarre response from SoCal police that kind of leaves a lot of us wondering, like, maybe we don't really know what they know, because it kind of seems like they're covering for something that we're not fully like privy to. There are just too many coincidences and, like, too many instances of, like, intentional mishandlings and information that was concealed from us for us not to question what really happened to Mitrice Richardson. And this is her story. <laughs> the little gasp. <laughs> no, I, so I was trying, I was waiting to, I didn't want to interrupt you. I was going to ask where we are, but you said SoCal. Yeah, so technically, okay. let's see, well, Mitrice actually lives she lived up in um, Covina, California, and I'll get into her backstory and everything, but she was going to school or had just graduated by the time the story unfolds, which was Cal State Fullerton. So she's actually closer to like the Los Angeles area, like Los Angeles proper, but the disappearance actually takes place in Malibu. So we've got a few different like touch points of, we'll go through all of the different locations that are like relevant to the story, but Malibu and Calabasas are very important. Oh, wow. So we've got like a very like affluent disapp- like area disappearance, which is very, mm, It's I can already like feel the corruption and the Corruption, cover-ups. cover up for short. You've got a huge police force behind this. I mean, going up against the LAPD yeah. is some serious, I almost did it. I almost swore. Oh, no. I haven't <gasps> even earned it yet. We're only 90 seconds in. <laughs> <laughs> when do we earn it? <laughs> we, have, we have to get an hour in or county has to really do some something. I almost did it again. County. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> I did a muzzle. Well, baby, it's hard to talk about county without 
cussing. Going off the rail. I know. I, I thought I was like, maybe I should bring out the Nancy Grace voice for this. I'll, I'll try to refrain until I earn that as well. I think that has to be earned. Yeah. <laughs> you know that she, she must have her own swear word adjacent, like, uh, glossary. Absolutely, like, she does. Like, words that she reuses that are not... So we should... We, we'll, we'll start we should adopt some of those. those. Yeah, we'll adopt them. Um, I think as I wrote the research last night, I subconsciously wrote in cockamamie. And I also added malarkey. <laughs> malarkey <laughs> oh my god those are fantastic also i think i've told you cattywampus is a great southern term cattywampus that just means you've mentioned that before but means, what does that mean it means like something is all like 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 hanky or flip-flopped <laughs> or doesn't make sense i used to have this this uh math teacher growing up Shout out to Ginger Wessel, Mrs. Wessel. But she used to Full make name, us like, come up to the Ginger. Yeah, well, I hope she's still alive, too. She's so old. But, the darker um, turn. <laughs> but she used to make us come up on the board, and she taught algebra, and we'd mm-hmm. have to come up. And I just remember her so many times, like, kids would go up and start drawing parabolas, and she'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. This is all sorts of cattywampus. No, no, no. Draw that parabola again. I'm absolutely adding i'm gonna write that in my notes in two minutes because i'm absolutely adopting that this all counts a cattywampus i like that (laughs) i like it yeah topsy turvy but i know what you mean though about the calabasas malibu thing it does add a certain air of like sinister to this to think that this happened in a very affluent place and it's also i mean there are a few like racial ties and potential racial motivations in this my was a young black woman who went missing and the majority of the police force who were on this and who actually probably were involved in the misconduct were white officers. And a lot of it happens at like a very, a very high end restaurant in Malibu. There's a lot to get into with this. It's very interesting. Um, Oh, wow. So I'm going to give you some backstory. I'm going to jump straight in. Oh my God. I told you I wouldn't forget it. And I did (laughs) right before your eyes. (laughs) Hi everybody. Welcome to creep time. The podcast with Silas. You did still we're back. Hi everybody. Happy Friday, everybody. We're so happy to have you back on another episode. Um, I got some DMs from our last episode, and people were messaging me about my whole like rant about the Spotify bell notification. They were like, if you're going to sponsor something, just disclose it. And I was like, I did it. I'm not sponsored. I'm like, I love the bell notification. <laughs> I can see how you thought that for sure, though, because I definitely like it was out of the blue. But I really do love that thing because I forget about podcasts. So I need that. Yeah. I That's why I said with Apple, I think I'm just already, I get it easy because I think once you like subscribe to it, you automatically yeah. get notifications. I get them all the time. You're like auto opted in. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I promise you, I wasn't trying to like sell you any snake oil or anything. I truly am just a diehard for the Spotify <laughs> bell notification. So if you don't want to miss an episode, I, I will plug it now. I think you should turn it on. Yeah. Click that thing. Turn it on. <laughs> And on Apple, subscribe, y'all, and then it's real easy. You know what? Actually, I checked our analytics last week, and we've got a good chunk who listen on Amazon Podcasts slash Amazon Music. And I was like, oh, I didn't. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, our Apple to Spotify ratio is literally 50-50. Like, completely wow. split at, like, I think 45% each. So it's a smaller chunk on Amazon, but they're there. That's amazing. Those Prime I members. I kind of forgot that Amazon Music is a thing. But yeah, what a great way to, to get your Prime membership, like get its full worth. There's so, I kind of forget There's about so that. many things that Amazon offers us. Again, here I am. They're going to be like, now you're plugging Amazon. Like, I, can't, <laughs> I just can't talk about anything. 
All right, all right. I'm going to get off my soapbox because I know they're going to be like, he's bantering. So I'll jump back into our story. So let's give you some backstory, Stu, on who Maitrese Richardson was. Now, her birthday is coming up, actually. She was born on April 30th, 1985, to her parents, Latisse and Michael. So she's about, I said this was 2009, so she's about 24 when all of this goes down. Now, Maitrese, she actually spent a good part of her childhood living with her great-grandmother, Mildred, because Latisse, her mother... Um, was entering her senior year in high school when she had Maitree. So she was a really young mom. So she needed help with, you know, her new daughter. And because of this, Maitree became especially close to her great-grandmother, which is a little important um, in the latter part of the story because you would see that that relationship kind of carries over through adulthood. Now, Maitree was not very old when her father ends up leaving the picture because both of her parents, like I said, they were very young I think I read that her dad was working in some kind of a fast food spot. It might have been a McDonald's, but as you know, like even back in the 90s, like living in Southern California is no joke. Like it's tough to make ends mm-hmm. meet. So because of that, he doesn't want to do this, but he gets etched into, um, or etched isn't the right word. He gets edged into dealing. He starts dealing drugs to try to make some extra money. He gets caught, gets an egregious charge. Um, which kind of knocks him out of her childhood for a good part of her life. It's eight years that he's incarcerated for dealing. So it's really just these women in her life who are raising her. Now, Maitrese's mother, Latisse, she does end up moving, or she moves on, rather, and she does eventually marry someone new. It's a new man who comes into the life of Maitrese as her stepfather, and this is around the 90s while she's growing up. They lived in Los Angeles, like I said, for a good part of her life. But at some point, and I didn't know this, I guess I wasn't brushed up on L.A. history, but in 1992, the Rodney King riots actually began. And this followed the acquittal of four white police officers who were responsible Mm. for the severe, severe beating of motorist Rodney King during a traffic stop. So huge, huge riots and carnage would um, erupt throughout Los Angeles, and it became so severe that the family actually relocates to the suburbs of Covina, California, which I think is north. I'm not super aware. I, I, I really stick to my bubble of like Los Angeles County. So I'm not super aware yeah. of like how far out that is. But I just know it's a suburb. I think it's 60 miles outside of L.A. Just based on the other research in the story. Do you happen to know where it is? Miss Atlas. I was going to say my uh, California geography is limited to the Bay Area after last week. I I know nothing. I I mean, well, Malibu Mm -hmm. is how far away would Malibu be from Corvina area? Oh, from Covina. Oh, Covina. Yeah. So it's 60 miles in this story. But I consider Malibu to be kind of I know people will roast me for this, but it's kind of in the L.A. County bubble. It's not really. So to get to Malibu, yeah. you go all the way to the west. So you can get to the water, get to Santa Monica, and then you would take the Pacific Coast Highway up to Malibu. Okay. It's not super far. Like, I go hiking there sometimes on the weekends, but it's also yeah. not incredibly close to, like, central L.A. Yeah. Well, and not close to where she grew up. No, so no, not at all. Just for context. Yeah. yeah. Although her great-grandmother still, I think, stayed somewhat close she was in or close to la county because Maitrese does eventually move back in with her when she goes to school Mm. so let's talk about this shift over up to covina california for the family because Maitrese is still pretty young at this point what it kind of gave them was like a a fresh start like Maitrese had so many more opportunities than she would 
in L.A. County, and she excels in school and her extracurriculars as she grows up. She was described as an exceptional student. She had very high grades. She became a cheerleader. Ding, ding, ding. Just like used to. And I know this is through middle school, high school. And I think she also started competitive dance. And I'm pretty sure as she got older, like in high school, she was doing beauty pageants. If you see pictures of her, she's absolutely gorgeous, too. And she was described with a close group of friends um, who were around her at all times. She was always supported by, like, this team atmosphere growing up. And a lot of this carried over to her college career. And I do want to point out that it's described in the research that although Maitrese is pretty athletic, she was not a fan of the outdoors. So it's pretty explicit Mm -hmm. from those who knew her that she did not like outdoor sports not into hiking, did not like camping, freaked out by insects. So that's really interesting to hear in the context of knowing what happens in this story. So let's fast forward where she um, she actually gets to college, right? So she studies at Cal State Fullerton, where she's going to get a bachelor's degree in psychology. Because the school is pretty far outside of Covina, like I said, she moves back down closer to Los Angeles, lives with the great-grandmother Mildred. So to no surprise, college is very much the same for Maitrese. She excels, and she's constantly making the dean's list in her psych program. And by 2008, she graduates, and she's actually going to get her master's. Like, she's interested in keeping up with psych so she can really make a career out of her passion for the field. Now, the college era is interesting in the story because it's also a time of self-discovery for her. While she's in college, she does come out to her family as gay, which they're very chill about, super accepting. It's not an issue. What wasn't very easy for them to accept was that while she's in school, she actually also got a job, I think down in Long Beach at a gay club, as an exotic dancer. And she's going by the name Hazel. So they, you, they, I don't know why they knew this, but somehow they did. But that was harder for them to swallow overall. It was reported her family, like I said, knew about that. They knew she was going under the name Hazel. She had printed out business cards with the name Hazel on it. Um, and although the family is like pretty progressive, it's just difficult for them to digest that she's out there dancing on the weekends. And I don't even think it was like, I think it was like go-go dancing. I don't even think it's like burlesque or like stripping. I don't think that's what it was. But Yeah, but, like she's like maybe clothed in like on a, like a little area of the bar yeah. or something. I'm imagining like, the Abbey. Yeah. It's very like, it's just go-go dancing. Yeah. It's not full nudity yeah. or anything like that. Now, the reason I want to bring this up, though, and the reason I decided to mention that she was dancing was because this kind of ties back to some of the theories we'll get into later, just about these conversations around trafficking. So I think it's important to give context as to the different ways that Maitrese might have maybe crossed paths with some shady folks in the nightclub industry who maybe targeted her. And she also tried to pursue modeling around this time. And even her friends like warned her about this because... Anybody who knows anything about modeling in L.A., you should be careful because there are some insidious people, sketchy adults in this city who prey upon young women specifically. And they'll call themselves like, Mm. you know, I'm a photographer or, you know, like I'm an agent or I'm a manager. Like, this is what you need to do. Like, we've heard those stories before. Right. It's like it's like a lion's den. Like, it's very easy to get manipulated or exploited if you don't know the lay of the land. So that was the fear. But again, she's dead set on like giving it a try. She's firm, like, this is what I want to do. And also, she's still pursuing relationships with girls at this time. And there's one in particular that I want to call out because it seems like it's a turning point for her. This is Vanessa. Now, 
it's never very clear from the reporting that I read exactly like what the nature of the relationship was, but it kind of sounded like a love triangle. Like maybe Maitrese wanted Vanessa, but Vanessa's already interested or she's interested in Maitrese, but she's already tied to another woman. So eventually mm. at some point in this like crossfire, uh, Vanessa just gives a hard no. She's like, Maitrese, it's not going to happen and just rejects her. This was a turning point in her mind where friends noticed something became very off with Maitrese Richardson. She's kind of having all of these experiences, like I said, in the nightclub industry as the dancer, the modeling, and she meets a host of malicious characters. And then she suffers this massive rejection and all of it compounds and she completely withdraws from everybody around her. She's like, she's known as a very social person. She keeps up with her friends and her family. Like that's who she is. And then suddenly she's just very disconnected, you know, like detached from her own reality. Can I ask how she and Vanessa knew each other or like how they met? I'm pretty sure it was from college. I I'm not 100%. It must've been college or it could have even been the nightclub in long beach, which was a gay club. Yeah. But I just know that she was, in the mix of that friend group. Um, And really her relationship to Vanessa is not as important as the rejection itself, because I think that was the inciting incident where my tree starts to unravel a little bit. I think it's also, it must be really hard to get rejected when you are kind of in that line of work where your sexuality and your attractiveness is kind of like your net worth. Like, and yeah. you're probably riding that wave of like, oh, I feel so like hot and good and beautiful and sexy when I like do all this stuff. So there's no way somebody could reject me. And then it must just be tough, especially also like newly coming. I was going to say, I was like, I think like, that's what stings. So more. excited. Yeah. 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 Well, it's like it's oh, like geez. baby's first heartbreak in a weird way because it's yeah. a whole new like playing field for, for relationships. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess kind of your first love after coming out, it's it's probably really daunting especially coming out as an adult too so that was tough for her that was really tough but her withdrawing is actually not as sinister as what she's actually putting out there publicly so this is where we get into some of the strange like social media around this and what she's putting out on facebook and myspace because don't forget we're in 2009 oh my god yes so we get these like Facebook statuses, like endless Facebook statuses and MySpace updates that kind of seemed like nonsensical thoughts or like maybe she might be on the edge of a mental break. For example, I've got, um, I'll paraphrase, but there's one of her most notable statuses from around this time. She says like that feeling when you wake up crying on a Saturday morning because you've seen the light, but continue to watch everyone in the dark. So you're getting like a little taste that something's kind of turning with her like this is not normal this is not a normal way of thinking or talking or expressing herself for her cry for help sort of a little bit i i think so and then i think it's something that would to me i think now would probably clearly signal a mental health crisis that could be unfolding but i just don't think the public consciousness and conversation around mental health was nearly as sophisticated as it as it is now i just think it becomes like the It's like the bystander effect. Like people see things online and then they just whisper, but they don't reach out or they don't contact families or friends or like check in on people. People were just kind of watching her unravel on social media without intervening, which is a huge fault in this story because a lot of it could have been prevented. So 
you know, actually, we've seen similar things with that, I think, with Bryceless Pizza. I'm just remembering that now because I think, like, the, the weird, like, denial almost of his family kind of shifted into this bystander effect where it's scary to admit that something might be wrong, you know? Yeah. And it's, again, we're sort of at that same age mm. where we've seen with a lot of people that start to the structure is gone or whatever and they start to like turn in this like early 20s mid 20s kind of age group it's fascinating now that we've covered so many of these cases it's mental health in that age group tends to play a big part every time somebody goes missing it really does i i'm just noticing that now too i mean i do think that there were some insidious hands in this story but sure very very clearly like she was going through something i may have like i don't want to misspeak Mm -hmm. but i thought i saw something in the research while i was reading about this case where someone said she was right within like the age bracket for women um where they start to show early signs of bipolar disorder so it Mm. could i mean i don't think her mother ever said that there was any history of mental illness in the family which i also think played into why this went on for so long without someone intervening because again it's scary to admit what's in front of you sometimes but I, I think that's important, too, that she was 24, like you're saying, and, like, this could have been a turning point for someone who had been pretty high-functioning up until this point, right? Yeah. So how bad does this actually get? Friends start growing concerned when texts from Maitrese seem to be completely nonsensical. Like, I'm talking full gibberish. Like, she cannot form sentences. That's some, that's some really serious stuff. Nothing's connected. The thoughts are very scattered and no one knows what to make of it. Like this girl, like I said, who again was very high functioning and social for the majority of her life, even her college life. And now she's suddenly acting unhinged or even drugged. I don't even think a lot of people were thinking she might be on a mental break. They thought she might be dabbling with something. There's like, uh, there's a lot of denial and hesitancy to take action. But the erratic thoughts worsen very quickly over a select series of days that I want to focus on where everything goes down. Maitrice's mother ends up texting her daughter just to see, like, you know, how are you doing? Because I, I don't think she's seeing all of the Facebook statuses or the strange texts to friends. So she, she's kind of, like, aloof to the problem at this point. Like, she's not fully clued in. But then when Maitrice responds, she sends this bizarre paragraph kind of like loosely talking that so I'll paraphrase but what she says to her mom is you told me that I could be whoever I wanted when I grew up Miss America or America's next top model but I'm going to be mother nature Mr. Obama is going to make space for my role in the White House insidious something dark is going Uh on yeah yeah and you know what's strange I've seen I, I won't course name anybody but i have seen situations like this where people start to unravel and their reality is disconnecting a bit and yes i have to they always say something kind of similar to this where they say like they're connected to a larger group of people like they reference like white house like the white house or like corporations or they think there's like a role for them or like they think positive things are happening for them it's very strange yes i've i've definitely seen that before too and uh Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like that weird, like, like 
um, attached to something like otherworldly, like Mother Nature or like things that are not based in reality, sort of like tying yourself to a greater purpose Mm -hmm. beyond what like mere, you know, seeing the light while everyone's in the dark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm hmm. So very alarming thoughts going on. Um, and her mom is trying to get a hold of her and like understand like what what are you even talking about? Um, just but she it's like not hitting how serious this is. I don't know if that's just like the common through line here, because again, like we've seen different sets of parents like the Briceless Pisa case kind of discredit the severity of signs of mental illness, but for whatever mm-hmm. reason, immediate action was not taken to get her help so my trees i think this all happens in like a condensed period too i think this happens like in the same day that she texts her mom and then like she goes to this job and then like she goes to the restaurant in malibu so it all happens very quick she shows up at her other job which um i think she was working at like a shipment center like a fulfillment center at this time and nobody really reported that she seemed super off but Come lunchtime, she wanders off and just never comes back. So the work folks are kind of concerned because they're like, that's not that's not like her to just like wander off without explanation and then just not show up to work again. It's just very far from her personality as they knew it. So Maitrice eventually does make her way back home to her great-grandmother, Mildred's house, which again, I think she was living there at the time. And it's very normal for them because this is a part of their routine every Wednesday night that they actually eat together. So that's where this starts. She gets back to the house. She's going to have dinner with Mildred. But almost immediately, Maitrice tells her that she has to leave. She's going to be gone for the night. And her great-grandmother is in her 90s, so she doesn't pay much mind to this. And she's like, oh, okay. And then a series of events unfold on this night where we would see this story spiral into something that is much more mysterious than I think we anticipated. So before I go any further and talk about what happens at the restaurant, I just want to know your thoughts so far. I think, I mean, we're kind of having this conversation already about how the, the bystander effect and how serious like this might've been, but everyone's kind of looking the other way or looking to see, is anyone going to do anything? Yeah. This is a really interesting case though, because I don't think we've ever had one where it's a female that is really, like still uh, like ingrained either in the work that they're doing or around people a lot. Like she wasn't a loner. Like she was like very sociable. She was a, you know, a performer. Like she had a job. She was like attend attentive to like she went, she showed up like, so this is just really interesting. Um, she had a network of people too. It's like, like you're saying, yeah. like that's what's odd is that you can have a whole circle around you. And you can be exhibiting, I think, I mean, in black and white, maybe the story unfolded differently in real life. But in black and white, it looks pretty concrete that this is someone who's not well. But yeah, nobody intervenes. It even gets it gets so worse strange. at the restaurant, too, which I should I just dive into the restaurant? Yeah. Yeah. OK, so I'm going to take us. I think the same day, like I said, so it's September 16th, 2009. Now, on this evening, my trees drives from her grandmother's house all the way to Malibu, which is a 40-mile drive. So you know what? I'm going to take back what I said before. The grandmother's not super close to LA County, I guess. Maybe she's closer than Covina, but I would not consider her her to be close to like LA County or Malibu for sure. Maitrice drives all the way there to Joffrey's Restaurant, 
which is right by the water. I think I've been there, which is also eerie. Um, And no one knows why. She just said she had to go to the beach. She wasn't meeting anybody there. She went alone. Now, one of the first tells that something is deeply wrong with her. When she pulls up to valet, the attendant sees her and, you know, he's she's in the line to get her car parked. He parks a car that's in front of hers and then comes back. And when he comes back, she's not in her car. She's in his personal car sitting in the front seat. So he, yeah, so he opens the door and he's like questioning her. He's like, ma'am, like, what are you doing? (laughs) And according to him, she is completely nonsensical. Like she looks over at him with these wide eyes and she's just like saying random words. Again, like bizarre instances of things where you would be like, that's pretty clear that something's probably wrong with her and maybe somebody should do something. But for whatever reason... He decides to look past it. So he kind of, he just, maybe he chalks it up to like eccentricities or like just being drunk. I don't know. Somehow this was not alarming enough for him. So he just offered to help her out of his car and escorts her. He walks her into the front entrance of the restaurant. And I think by the time, the way he described it to police is that by the time they get to the door, she actually shifts back into like more normal conversation and she seems a little lucid. And again, this is the Bryceless Pizza effect. It's like there are these moments of clarity and then these moments where you're like, what are you doing? Yeah. But she's speaking normally. Because it's like, what are you going to do? You don't, this is a stranger. Like what, like, what is it really your place to say, are you, you know, are you okay? What's wrong with you? If yeah. all of a sudden they seem relatively normal, As- they flip especially yeah 30 seconds later yeah they get straight to the door and she's talking as if nothing odd had happened so the odd behavior had stopped by the time she gets to the host stand they seat her everything's fine but then the odd behavior starts again and actually gets worse once she's in the restaurant so she sits down she orders her dinner she gets a cocktail and almost immediately she is up she's up and she's moving through the restaurant from table to table patrons would report that she's sitting down with people at random tables and she's starting conversations and she is way out of it like she's sitting there and she's saying some real bizarre stuff she's like did you know i'm from mars and that my mother is actually mother nature did you know that and i mean people around her i don't think they even suspected that she had a it was like a mental health crisis going on they think she's under the influence they're like this woman is tripping out And meanwhile, she's having like a full psychotic episode in public and everyone's just like, oh, she's got to be high. Now, all of that unfolds for like a good hour, I think, timeline wise. And eventually she gets up to leave and the management goes and they kind of latch on to her because she hasn't paid her bill, her like $89 bill. And although like a bunch of people jump in, like there are people at tables who jump in, there are like servers who jump in. They're like, no, like we'll cover it. Like we'll take care of it. Like let's not cause a scene or like, you know, embarrass her. Um, but I think the management can tell that this is not a normal situation. Like, it's not as simple as, like, she doesn't have money for the bill. There's something wrong with her. So they do opt to call yeah. police. And this is a really interesting part of the timeline because this phone call is recorded. This exists. And you can listen to it. So chilling. So eerie. Like, Ugh. knowing everything that happens here. But basically, police are contacted. And they're told of a description of a woman who might be on drugs. She's acting erratic. And the Malibu PD come where Maitrice is brought outside of the restaurant and she's questioned and they do a field sobriety test. Now, reportedly, while questioning her and they do conduct the test, 
it seemed like she passed. Like, they're like, she's not... Well, she doesn't seem drunk, and she doesn't actually seem like she's even high. But still, something's, like, a little off with her and her her answers here. So they just, they default, and they're like, okay, we're just going to assume that she's under the influence of something. And they use that to go search her vehicle. They search the vehicle where they found less than an ounce of weed in the car. And for them, that was enough where they're like, let's just arrest her. So what they do is they opt to take her in the cruiser because they're going to take her to the station where she's going to be kept in a holding cell and they have her car towed, even though the car still has all of her belongings in it. So she's taken away to the station without her phone. She does not have a wallet. There's no ID, no credit cards. Literally everything of hers is left in her car that police just searched and they like clearly could have grabbed that stuff before taking her away. They just choose not to. And she's hauled off. Thoughts on that before, because I, I can already tell I'm going to get fired up because, again, this is county police defamation hour. Take them down. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And so I, I guess what I'm wondering is when, so she passes the test, they find the ounce mm-hmm. of weed. And then I wonder, I'm sure you'll go into what happens now, but her, her how she handled being told you're going to you're going to the station like she wasn't resistant from everything they described yeah. she was not resist like That's she did not resist she was kind of like passive really and like just kind of like okay she, i don't think she was fully cognizant of what was even going on i think people are st- like I, still gravely underestimating like how disconnected she is i'm almost wondering if like the weed that she was smoking was like laced or something like she just sounds like she's so like bing bong bing bong through like different yeah. Well, this had like been going on being for... Being okay, being not. For more than just like... You mean like in general, the weed that she might have had for that month or something? Well, in that moment, like when she was driving, like did she smoke weed like on her way out? Then like could it have been bad? Like it had something very strange in it. I, like, I don't even think there was any proof that she... Well, she had been exhibiting the strange behavior well before this day. Today was just an yeah. especially bad day. But I don't even think there was any proof that she had smoked the weed. They just found a baggie, like a little like dime bag of yeah. weed. And they're like, it's got to be it. Like, it's got to be weed. Also, I wonder what the procedure is normally. Do they normally tow your car or does somebody get in and I guess it is what they do. I, yeah, they, gonna drive your they car, for I sure guess. tow your car. But I think it would be i mean it just seemed like that would be an obvious thought like okay if we're going to take her to the station she might need some things when she eventually is released from stuff. the station yeah. yeah like maybe a credit card or like maybe your phone you like your stuff like your id yeah so anyway that does not happen now this is the problem really from the get go is like like i said they conducted the field sobriety test and there's no indication that she's under the influence of drugs or alcohol and and yet they make this decision where they're like, well, we're going to treat her like she's under the influence. When probably what should have happened was emergency medical services should have been called. Like, she she shouldn't be in a holding cell somewhere in Malibu if she seems like she's a little, like, off her rocker. Spiraling. Yeah. yeah. And in addition to that, like I said, the car gets towed away. Um, they don't take any of the stuff, so she's going to be booked and processed there without any of her belongings. And I wrote down in my notes here, <laughs> I was, like, going through the research, I write... County police hacks. <laughs> but really, though, I mean, is that not some bull? Like, it's horrible. Oh, my gosh. 
I I don't even know what to say. Especially in Malibu, I think that that out of all the county police, they might be the ones to be like, oh, she might need her bag. If there's anything I've, <laughs> she might need her. <laughs> yeah, I know her bag. Yeah, she might need her air. Ma- no, I'm her just wallet. Kidding. No, she I know what you her, mean though. You know, her, yeah. <laughs> well, if there's anything I've learned uh, about living in Los Angeles, the LAPD. I know this isn't technically LAPD, but they eventually do take over the case. They are worthless. <laughs> Good for nothing. Notoriously so corrupt. I mean, from, you know, oh. 100, 100 years ago, probably starting. Oh, I could do a whole episode on all of, like, the corruption cases that have come out of the LAPD. But this is actually a little more specific because this really starts with the Malibu PD and this specific station. I don't know if there's any concrete proof that they had a connection to this woman or they saw an opportunity here. That's where all of the insidious story kind of unfolds. But I, I think that there is a, there's a bigger hand in all of this than a lot of people realize. Actually, before I get into it, let me give my little disclaimer for all of the creepers, (laughs) because I do this on every conspiracy video. If you listen back to the ones with, um, with Jack, everything we're discussing in this, I should say is purely conspiracy just for the topic of conversation it does not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of us as the podcast hosts and it's not intended to harm any one person or any one entity or party let's say it's a pretty clear a pretty clear caveat right i mean we're also hacks I know when people write in the reviews, I, this is so sweet when they're like, you guys are like investigators. I'm like, you cannot imagine how far from the truth that is. <laughs> you know what? I, I will give us credit. I think we're actually we I will say I don't think our speculating or our theorizing ever comes from a malicious place. I think Mm-mm. we do really try to look at the facts and just tap into whatever emotional intelligence you and I have and try to predict what could have happened. But yeah, there's no part of me or you that we ever theorize with the intention of, uh, you know, hurting anybody or their line of work or whatever. So except in the case of taking, of taking down County police, (laughs) that is always with intention. (laughs) Um, no, I, I agree. I think we're just generally like, I think we're very inquisitive people when it comes to stories like yes. this. So I think that we, it's like a puzzle all every time that we hear this yes, and we're like, always. We, we've got to fit it somehow. Um, yeah. And I actually don't even know if we stretch the truth all that much or like stretch like the possibility. Like, I don't think we reach too far when we pitch these theories. I think, like you said, like we're really just picking apart like, well, what is like, what's in between the lines here like that we're missing? And this is this yeah. is one of those stories for sure. It's actually much more surface level than that. <laughs> Once I get into it, you're going to be like, um, "Sorry, is there any conspiracy here?" <laughs> I'm so shook. I'm like, "What? What is going to happen to her with the county police?" Oh God, <clears throat> what doesn't happen? To be honest. Oh. <clears throat> All right, let me clear my throat for this next section. Now, where was I? One thing that I think was interesting oh yeah that i wanted to mention actually so my trees gets taken away in the cruiser we know that part and all of this like everything that happened at the restaurant with like the arrest for the ounce of weed or less than an ounce of weed this is a fraction a fraction of the unbelievably sinister story that unfolds here 
concerning police misconduct. It's unfathomable. Once I get into it, you're going to flip. But the interesting thing that I wanted to know, because I think it ties the whole story together of like who knew what and like how did word get back to who, was that before Mitrice is actually taken away in the cruiser at the restaurant, before like the police were even called, the managers actually tried to work with her because they didn't want to escalate the situation and call the police. Even though that's the protocol of someone's like going to dine and dash, which is also over the top and ridiculous, but very Malibu. They were like, ma'am, is there like someone we can call for you? Like maybe you could have a family member or like a friend come here who can like pick you up and they can like cover your tab for you maybe. And I guess what she opted to do was she called her grandmother or the great grandmother, Mildred. And you can imagine how desperately confused this poor I was just 90 some odd year old woman was when my trees calls she's speaking literal gibberish over the phone and this grandma she doesn't know what to do because she's 40 minutes away she's not going to hop in a car and drive to Malibu and like take care of a tab so what she opts to do is call my mother Latisse and that's how Latisse got word that her daughter was being taken into custody so this all happened really quick basically my calls the grandmother the great-grandmother sorry and then the great-grandmother calls Latisse Latisse calls back to the restaurant and she's like, sorry, what is going on with my daughter? And they're like, we're so sorry, ma'am, but she's already been taken away to like the the Malibu police station and her car is being towed. By the time Latisse, Maitrice's mother, calls the restaurant, Maitrice hasn't even arrived at the station yet. So then this is where our story really starts. Maitrice's mother contacted the police station and a recording of this call exists as well she's calling to confirm like you know is my daughter gonna be there she hasn't arrived yet and the police station confirms yeah we have like a young woman an african-american woman who's being um brought in she's on her way up what's important about this call is that my mother specifically asks is she gonna be booked and is she gonna be held there for the night she says like she's she's on the phone and she's you can listen to this recording she's like completely frazzled she's like this is so unlike my daughter she's like it's very out of character for her like she doesn't really she just like doesn't know like what's going on with my at this point like she's not even sure that this is a mental health thing she's like is she drunk did she just get like drunk or high at this restaurant um and it's very late at night at this point too like it's rolling around like getting close to midnight and she just wants to ensure on the phone and she's like you know can you just hold her i just want to ensure that like because i'm so far away if you're going to keep her there and she's booked through the night until the morning, hold her there until the morning when I can get up and I can drive there once you're ready to release her. She's not getting all the details. But again, specifically, like I said, she asked this operator and he confirmed he was like, yes, ma'am, we're absolutely going to hold her. Like, she's going to be here. It's fine. Because she knows she's like, my daughter's car is towed. Like, she doesn't know anybody in that area. She doesn't have friends in Malibu. She doesn't know that area. She does not know where she is. And she specifically says, I don't want her walking out in the middle of the night alone. That is so unbelievably haunting to hear in the context of what happens in this story. (laughs) So, like I said, the craziest part about all of this is that the officers do confirm this. They're like, we're good. Like, she might be drunk. So what we're going to do is keep her in the holding cell. And then we'll give you a call in the morning when the time comes to pick her up and we'll follow up with next steps. And at one point, or actually, I guess throughout the whole, the entirety of this call, it just doesn't feel 
it just doesn't feel very serious. I mean, Latisse herself is not grasping how serious this is because she's keeping the conversation like relatively light. She's being very polite and she just wants to ensure like, oh, well, as long as she's going to be like kept safe, like let me once she like comes down from the high or being drunk, like I'll come take care of it. And she was like, if I had any inclination that you were going to release her tonight, like, of course, I'll come pick her up. But if you're telling me you're not, then we're good. She eventually says, and I I, I want to keep this. Uh, I, I can't read a direct quote because I don't have it in front of me. But she kind of like laughingly makes a joke where she says, you know, I don't want to I don't want to like wake up to a morning report that she's lost in the woods somewhere with her head chopped off. She says as a joke. Stop. That statement will haunt this case. It is so, so freaky to hear her say that on this initial call to police, knowing what happens. And I'm going to get into all of it. <laughs> is that God. not some... This might be a moment where I earn it. Is that not some shit? <laughs> I know. I was going to say the maternal instinct is right. Like the mom knew to go. And I think... And I'm not saying that bad on her mother not for not all. going, oh but God. your mom, your mom knows like, and I think in hindsight, poor thing that has probably haunted her so much because she probably wanted to just go straight there, but either was, you know, it was late and she couldn't go or didn't want to embarrass, you know, her daughter maybe if she was really drunk or well, high. She's, she's not in a state to have that. a conversation if like her daughter's high. Yeah. You know what I mean? She's like, maybe it's oh best if, if she's going to be kept there, like safe in your custody. Like at least I know that she can safely come down from the high if she's on something and I can come there in the morning. We will take care of all of this. She's 60 miles away. That's a drive. It's a long drive. Yeah. Is her head chopped off? <sighs> Well, just get into it. <laughs> I'm scared. So let's see. Where are we at? We've got Mitrice's mother, Latisse, being assured, like I said, that her daughter's going to be kept in custody until the morning because, like I said, Latisse lives 60 miles away from the station. They are not from Malibu. This is a long, long drive. She's like, let's just wait till she sobers up. However, even though, even though Latisse was assured that Mitrice would be safe something very different happened at that station. Now, according to the story from County Police, this is allegedly what happened. Timing-wise, almost immediately after that call ends with Latisse, Mitrice ends up at the station. They bring her in, they process her, she gets a booking photo, which is terrifying to look at. She does not look well. And they determine very late, shortly after actually she came in, around midnight, she's perfectly fine, This is their story. They go, she's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with her. She's not under the influence. She's not showing any signs of like mental distress. And they release her out to the streets without anything. No phone, no wallet, no keys, no money, credit cards, ID, nothing. They just let her go out the front door. I mean... If we're assuming that she, if we're assuming that she suffered some kind of psychotic break, maybe just an hour before this, you're just gonna let this this woman walk out at midnight by herself without a car. What is like okay? As I was like reading this and going through the research, I'm like, what is the actual logic here? Like how how did you come to that decision as a collective group of officers as that being the smartest move in this situation? I would trust a better 
like better decision making to a teenager in this case like how could they not be culpable in this story yeah well i would assume there's also like processes you have to go through to like get out of the station like normally don't you have to kind of grab your and stuff don't you have to grab your the stuff? The damage is done, and... baby. <laughs> I know, I know. Let me mark it down. Don't you have to grab your? <laughs> I know. Don't you have to grab your stuff and kind of like not sign out? But I know there's some sort of process where you have to kind of you don't just like walk out like at the yeah. mall. Like, no, I I know what you mean though. Like I wasn't clear about that because I was like, well, if she was officially arrested and booked, I'm like, isn't there like a bail yeah. or something? Like there's definitely paperwork that you have to. Uh, it just seems like it's county. There's got to be paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> County takes on a whole new meeting of like of like malicious intent in this story but yeah. I mean this is the, here's the thing it's like this whole scenario is so ridiculous and so far-fetched as I'm reading it I'm like this is so ridiculous that maybe this is like this is just the story that they're putting up as the front because whatever did happen is a lot more damning but we we get into some other stuff here that Oh, God, I have to move with the story because I can't wait to get into, like, some of the juice yeah. of the story. But, I mean, what actually happens is kind of unbelievable. So, something about this from the jump feels very off. That the intentions of these officers seemed malicious. Because not even an hour before she's released, did they not just have that phone call with the mother? Where, like, she specifically asked for this exact scenario to not happen. She's like, my daughter needs to stay safe with you in your custody till the morning. So how does that call end? And then immediately after that ends, they're like, she's good to go. Let's release this lone woman out to the streets without any of her belongings or a way to get home or without informing the mother who we just talked to on the phone. That's odd. That is something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting heated. I can feel myself getting hot. I love it. (laughs) Fired up, baby. Nancy Grace, she must have done a segment on this because I know. Oh, she must oh, have. You're, you're Nancy. It's honestly like a werewolf right now. Like your Nancy is about to take over. As I'm telling the story, I can feel my voice going. I'm like, I mean, what were they thinking? It's like yeah. <laughs> my eyes are twitching. It's slowly starting to come in. Your hair is slowly gr- growing into a blonde bob. <laughs> sprouting, sprouting bond blob. <laughs> that can go on merch. Now, okay, so what happens is we know she gets released, right? And then we got all these hours that pass. Mitrice's mother never gets the phone call in the morning that she was expecting to because she thought what would happen was she's like, I'm going to get up really early because I'm going to have to make this drive. And they're going to call me in the morning to do what you're saying, like follow up with details of like, so this is how like the process goes as far as checking somebody out when they're in holding. She never gets that call about like any next step. So she's like, that's... That's strange. So she ends up calling the station back herself where she learns the news that exactly at exactly 1230 a.m. in the middle of the night, the station released Mitrice Richardson out to the streets of the dark hills of Malibu. Because this is not in like a well-trafficked area, this station. Yeah. This is in like the hills of Malibu. It's kind of a weird mix of like rural terrain and back roads and maybe some residential properties. So she's going to be, she's like on foot in like pitch black. Now, of course, there is a recording of this phone call as well, where you can just hear like how livid and panicked and distraught the mother is because they completely defied everything they said they were going to do and everything that was supposed to happen here. They promised her over the phone, but honestly, she's mostly concerned about like, okay, eight hours have elapsed. Like, 
where is my daughter at this point? Yeah. Now, you know, she repeats on the phone that she thought that she was going to be held there overnight. Otherwise, she would have just showed up that night to pick her up. And she was like working on this assumption that her daughter was just intoxicated. But now as she's kind of saying it out loud over the phone, you can hear this back. She's almost like realizing in real time that this never had anything to do with drugs or alcohol, but that she might have a mental health problem that's going on. And it, the problem is really in her mind. She's saying she's like, I think she's depressed. I think she's highly depressed. This isn't like her. And I'm afraid for her. And then she kind of breaks down on the phone. And the officer, <laughs> I can feel my Nancy Grace coming out. The officer on this phone does not apologize. There is no admission of wrongdoing or guilt or that there was even like a miscommunication he just keeps trying to belittle the situation. He's like, you know, it could be like a number of things. I mean, maybe she she met up with a friend. And he's like not getting it. She's like, she's not from Malibu. She doesn't know anybody in Malibu. She doesn't have a phone. Like, what are you talking about? And at one point, like deep into this conversation, he literally stops Latisse mid-word. And he's like, sorry, what's her name again? Like, he is disconnected. <gasps> disconnected from the seriousness of this while this mother is literally exclaiming that her daughter is in some kind of a depressive state and she's like she doesn't take medication like i don't think she's under the influence of anything like she's in an area on foot and this could be really dire so i'm gonna backtrack now to the 12 30 a.m release time to like speak to what we know about her foot traffic but before i do any thoughts on that phone call because i i feel like the energy of like being irate is shared in this no i i yeah i'm i'm with you i feel so bad for her oh my, i mean that must weigh on latisse the mother so much like sh- such an instance of, of just like being straight up lied to by an officer somebody yeah. who you trusted to keep your kids safe and they de- it seems like they deliberately did the opposite of it what yeah well it's it feels very much like they just they were like, let's just like get rid of this person because mm. they're like a like a nuisance. Like we like, and th- it, I feel like I really don't want to say this, but her profile to me is fitting the type of person that they don't really give a damn about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think it would be yeah. a miss to like not talk about the racial component of this for sure. Yeah. I think that played into I think that played into the arrest. I think that played into the way she was treated. I think it also could have played into some of the theories about how she was preyed upon by these officers, if that's true. And I'm going to get into some stuff when we get into some of the camera footage. I can feel my stomach. I'm burning a lot of energy right now talking about this. Like my stomach's rumbling (laughs) from from anger. Oh, my God. So here's what we know. Let's backtrack and walk through the timeline of what happened. Let's piece together the foot traffic. So the jailer released my trees at exactly 12.30 a.m. That is the story. She's let out into the darkness outside of the station. And to describe the area, like I said, it's this bizarre combination of, like, dark rural roads in the hills and residential. So it's kind of, think, like, dark mountain terrain of Malibu, if that gives you a better visual. Yeah. She is walking on foot, and it is not a place where you should be walking on foot at all in the dark. It's very dangerous. Once she was released at 12.30 a.m., we don't know like very much of like what actually happened to her over the next series of hours. And it's also interesting um, because I think it's a reflection of her state of mind 
to think about her wanting to go out of that station and then walk on foot. Most of her family and friends would later corroborate that this is, she is not the type of person to do this. Like not a fan of the outdoors and she would never go wandering on dark roads in an unknown place in the the middle of the night without her phone. Like it's just obvious stuff. But it's, again, this is painting a picture that not everybody knows the full story of what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that we eventually are able to backtrace where she might have moved that night is that she is spotted in the early hours of the morning. And she had moved quite a ways from the police station. So very early in that morning, the sun is coming up. Maitrese would be spotted by a witness up in the hills of Calabasas, specifically in Montanito. Former KTLA news anchor Bill Smith was kind of waking up. He was walking through his kitchen and his living room when he could spot through the glass door leading to the backyard a strange woman was just sitting there. So he doesn't really know what's going on, but he kind of immediately gets on the phone with police and he's like, you have to send somebody up because I don't know who's on my property right now. And again, she's sitting like on the steps of his back patio. So he kind of calls out to her and he's like, hey, are you okay? He's like, like, do you, do you need me to call anybody? Do you need any help? To which Maitrese turns around. I get chills telling this. She turns around, looks at him with this like bewildered look that he described. Like her eyes are vacant. And she paused. And then she says, I'm just resting. He's like something is off with this woman. And he's getting freaked out. So he's he like is still on the phone with cops. And he was like, you need to get somebody up here really really fast to assess the situation because she might need help and she most certainly did now by the time police finally do get up there to montanito mitrice is gone she took off on foot and this would be the last verified sighting of mitrice richardson thoughts on that before we get into what unfolds with the search Okay, so he sees her at like 5 a.m. and it's light. It's, er- like, it's early. Like yeah, like sun up. is coming yeah. up. It's early morning. And he just sees this woman randomly sitting in his back patio. Yeah, calls out to her, turns around. She goes, I'm just resting. <sighs> Taunting. I mean, I would be equally parts absolutely terrified if I were him and also like concerned I, I don't know what <laughs> yeah. i would do yeah i would be like do i let this woman go like do i let her out of my sight or is she dangerous like you never know you never know wow it's it's just like eerie to think that like there's again like it's a timing thing it's like within this slim window of when she took off on foot and when police actually do get up there that morning she's gone and they can't they just like can't latch on to her. Same yeah. thing with the mother, like missing her, like by calling the restaurant and just missing, like she got arrested. I think if the mother had called while the interrogation and arrest was happening at the restaurant, the mother would have been like, can you please just hold her there and I'm going to come get her? I think if it was still in that window. Now, word of this actually gets back to my Teresa's mother who is absolutely, she's distraught over this, to hear that her daughter has been spotted on foot all the way up in the hills of Calabasas. And she had specifically tried to avoid something like this happening. It was what she was afraid of from the get-go. And now her worst nightmare is fully forming in front of her. Her daughter is gone. Maitrese is officially a missing person because this was the last time anybody saw her. 
Now, because this was the last known sighting of my trees, the initial search efforts become concentrated back up to this area in the hills of Calabasas. And one of the first questions that's proposed is like, how how the hell did she even get there without a car? Like, it's quite a ways from the original police station where she had allegedly been released on foot that night to get all the way up to the hills of Calabasas through some very rocky and rough terrain. So it seemed bizarre to imagine that she had kind of wandered through the night all the way up to this property by herself, you know? But she might have because she said she was resting. She might have been exhausted. She probably was exhausted, which is also strange because... If she's exhausted, but then takes off on foot again after that last sighting, how far could she have gotten? The search commenced that day. How far? And they couldn't find her. How far can she be moving? Because I wonder if if she really was in a state of psychosis. I feel like your brain does wild things where, like, you're not even tired by... Maybe like running on adrenaline, something like that. Yeah, you're just on full adrenaline and, like, full, like whatever the the other reality is the the other plane you're sort of living in Mm. in that moment i think is your focus and i don't even think i don't know no i think i think you're right about that to think that she probably still had maybe some of the physical energy to keep moving she definitely hadn't had any water you know she hadn't eaten in a long time so i think we're just assuming (sighs) she must have been exhausted but again like you said like your mind takes over and sometimes you're just moving but what's strange about this is like search efforts do commence immediately and they bring in search canines where you're like, OK, well, you got the dogs, then we're going to be able to locate her. They can track her foot traffic for a little bit. Like it's kind of around the yard. They pick up her send different parts of the street. They even find footprints at one point. But eventually the canines lose her trace wherever she went is an unknown. Now, everything about this is shaping up to be a very very bad situation like the thought that my is still out there somewhere roaming like the wooded areas of calabasas on foot and no one can find her so her mother is livid and retargets back to the police station where she comes in and she goes i want to know every single thing that happened on that night i want to know what she sounded like what she said to you what you said to her and she notices around her there are cameras and she's like i want that footage now which conveniently they decline to provide because they claim they don't have it. And I've got in bold in my notes, can't trust county. County. You can't trust these guys. Oh, my God. Uh, Wait, so do they eventually, because you said earlier the camera footage. (laughs) So it eventually comes up. It does. So here's what happens. So she sees the cameras all around, like I said, and she's like, I want that footage. And they're like, well, here's the problem. Those cameras are for monitoring purposes only, so they don't actually record anything, which we would find out much later was a complete lie from the station. Yeah. So answer me this. Why are police, a police station as a whole, who claims to have no fault in her disappearance, saying that they're not culpable in any way, they did everything by the books, they're declining to provide valuable footage when it comes to a missing person who was last seen in their custody? (laughs) that is that's pretty black and white to me that something something went down here yeah so it's a real bad look and it's shaping up pretty hard that like these cops know something that they're not saying so this is when the case actually takes a very serious turn the family petitions to have it and wins actually to have it transferred to the lapd to investigate this specific station in malibu and they lawyer up quick 
there was some serious misconduct that went down here that they are not quite sure of just yet. But we know something happened on that night. Now, I'm going to get into some of the investigation and run you through like everything that we know until we actually get to a discovery. But before I do, can we just take one more, one more second to just like really think about county police withholding footage? That's serious. That's deliberate. And, well, it's deliberate, but it's also the arrogance that they they think they're not going to have to show it is the telling thing. Yeah. Thank God they lawyered up so that they were, like, forced by law to actually turn over this footage or admit that it even exists. Like, lying and thinking that you're not going to get caught is really something. Yeah, and I hate to say it again, but I think it's important to note the profile here of Mm -hmm. the victim and the mom that I think there's a possibility that they sort of thought if we withhold this or if we strong arm and we say it's just not available, that they might not push back and like we'll get away with it or whatever Yeah, or it could even be even more racially driven if they're thinking they're like well they may not even have the means to like enforce anything or get a lawyer you know what yeah. i mean like it's, yes it's, it's yeah that kind of arrogance that we're talking about I t- i'm totally with you yeah but at this point i mean this is a strange disappearance like i know people disappear a lot in major cities but this one is specific so it actually starts to catch some headlines and most of this narrative this public narrative in 2009 is focusing on gross police misconduct and neglect um, in the way that they handled her or even possibly that they know something that it seems like they're not owning up to or they're kind of like protecting their own like like this becomes a very insidious news story so the attorneys who are working with the family they're able to get the footage through legal means like i said now they were told that footage did not exist which to this day it has never been publicly released so no one has actually seen it but the family and the attorneys and I think the court systems, but allegedly it proves without a doubt that Mitrice Richardson was in no way, shape or form okay to leave that station. This footage shows her being booked into the station. They bring her in and there's footage from inside her cell where it's described that she was severely agitated. She is in a state and it's abundantly clear that she is suffering from like a mental health crisis. Like she's not well. But this visual sits into complete contrast with the story that we were being fed to or being fed by police where they're saying, well, the reason we released her and what he said on the phone earlier to the mother is that she she showed no signs of intoxication or mental illness. So we released her at midnight without any of her belongings because she seemed fine to go out on her own. Now, this is also unconfirmed. I'm going to I'll give a caveat, but I'm going to say it anyway. It has only been shared through the grapevine. And we'll never know because we've never seen the footage. But apparently this footage also shows a strange pattern in the time sequences to the very minute of when Mitrice is released physically out the front door of the building. There's multiple cameras and all the footage from the station was obtained. As Mitrice exits through the front door, an unnamed officer in this case is also seen on camera at the exact same moment, leaving through a back door. His full name has never been disclosed, like I said, and there's, there are no reports that I've found that have made any comment um, about his connection or if he ran into her. I can't imagine he didn't when he left the building. It's just kind of strange. I just want to keep that in mind as we're talking about the story. I don't know. Do you have any initial thoughts? Is, well, is the connotation that like something assault 
wise may have happened. Assaults are a topic of conversation. Trafficking could be a topic of conversation. Mm. There's there's a few different pieces here. Um, okay. But mind you, all of this, while this is getting uncovered, the hunt for Maitrice has not stopped because this is like rapidly unfolding. People are still up there looking for her. So the family comes back to that location. They've reorganized and assembled search parties. They're going up with friends, family, volunteers, and some investigators. And the logic is that, like I said before, she has got to be exhausted. <laughs> like, you can only go so far with without sleep, water, or food before you kind of just collapse. So they're assuming, they're like, we ha- we've got to find her. Like, she's somewhere in these hills of Calabasas. They cannot they searched everywhere i think they even got aerial searches involved like they could not find this girl there's no evidence even of like clothing or footprints or like a shoe like something that would like lead them down a path uh the only thing that i would mention is there were some bizarrely graffitied messages that showed up and although they could never prove that this is officially tied to the case or her disappearance it's just very convenient i think that these freshly graffitied messages were found at the base of Culver Canyon, which is where, like, the area she disappeared. And this is, like, her her last known sighting. And the messages are important. They're pertinent to this case because Maitrice is a young black woman. All of the messages were horrifically racist. Like, really, really racist and lewd. Um, it's just, like, timing-wise, like, that those would show up within 24 to 48 hours after this girl's last known sighting. It seemed a little odd, but again, there's nothing that we can do to prove it. I mean, it's just, they're just messages. So Maitrice is never located during the search, and I want to shift into another part of the story that a lot of people don't actually talk about because it's pretty controversial, but I think there's enough evidence to at least discuss this as potentially being a part of the narrative, and that has to do with the Las Vegas theory. Am I cool to dive in or do you want to do you want to say anything? Die. Okay. Die. I was like Las Vegas. <laughs> this is when I heard this, I was like, oh, this is this is a story. Like the story is taking a turn. So like I said, those search efforts get called off, right? The story takes a very bizarre turn that no one could really expect or explain. So right within this window of Mitrice's disappearance, in like the following weeks to months, there were several credible sightings that opened up the possibility that Maitrice may not be in the state anymore, and it was possible that she was trafficked to Las Vegas. So this is the Vegas theory. I'm going to go over it briefly. Within just a few weeks of her disappearance, Maitrice's biological father, the guy who got incarcerated for eight years, he had, I mean, he got out, obviously, once Maitrice was like a teenager and an adult, but he's still kind of like estranged from her life. Um, He was living in the Vegas area, or happened to be in the Vegas area, and he claimed he came up to an intersection and there was a crowd of people crossing and he saw Maitrice in that crowd and he was so compelled and so sure it was her. He got out of his car and chased into the intersection where he said he saw her look back and then she like drifted away into the crowd and he lost her. Now, I'll be honest, it didn't hold a ton of weight for me at first because I know what parents go through when they're going through a stage of grief and sometimes your brain Specifically, something as traumatic as this, like you fill in the blanks or you see things that may not be the full truth. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's what was happening here. That would have been the end of the story, except there were other sightings. It was not just him. A former classmate and friend of Maitreese, somebody who knew her personally, intimately, was in Vegas in a casino 
when they could not believe their eyes. They claimed that at a distance in a casino, they effectively saw her working as a call girl, like an escort. And they were so shocked. They, they could not believe what they were seeing. So they looked at her and they called out to her. They said, my trice. They said she looked back at them. Her eyes widened. She turned around and ran. Never saw her again. <gasps> so these two sightings were credible enough that investigators actually pursue the Vegas theory because they considered this a possibility that she could have been trafficked out of the state. Now, what's really bizarre about this is that over the course of the investigation into the scenario that she was trafficked, a total of 70 witnesses who were considered credible claimed that they saw her in Vegas during this window. 70? 70. That is a lot of people to make a decision to go out of their way and come forward and go on the record with a witness statement and say, I definitively saw this woman. That's compelling. That's that's very compelling. Oh, God, I have chills telling that. It's so eerie. <laughs> but, I mean, that's kind of the end of the road for the Vegas theory, is that they never turn any results up from that other than the witness statements. So they're like, I mean, it's an avenue, but we don't have any evidence to, like, really latch into anything. So everything goes quiet with the case for, like, a series of months, and we're going to shift into late summer. So this is August of the same year that she disappeared, when a harrowing discovery is made back in Calabasas. There are two rangers, while on foot, traveling through Dark Canyon. That should be omen number one. When they stumble Mm -hmm. upon a gruesome discovery found within the canyon, they called in the discovery of what looked like a human skull that had been partially preserved and was described with dark, curly hair. They also described finding articles of clothing in that area, which were later tied to the exact outfit that Maitrese had been wearing on the night and morning that she disappeared. And now, to paint the picture location-wise and just give you some context for proximity, this is about two to, like, two and a half miles away from the last known location where she was seen, like that backyard. And, of course, a discovery of a body cannot be confirmed that it's one person unless we have definitive proof through DNA and dental records, which were eventually obtained and used to confirm that these were the remains of 24-year-old Maitrese Richardson. (gasps) <gasps> oh my god wait i did not expect that to happen i thought you're gonna be like it was not her I, I i was like i didn't want to spoil anything in the top line i didn't even want to say that this oh was a mysterious god. death but i i wanted to keep this as a reveal because it is piecing it all together especially knowing the vegas theory is very strange oh my god now according to the forensic report The body showed evidence that it had been there for well over six months, which a lot of people have said effectively eliminates the Vegas theory, like entirely, if we're assuming the result of the forensic report was not tampered with. Because I have seen, I'm not saying anything happened, but I have seen and I have covered cases where you would be surprised how heavy a hand some of these high-ranking officers have in touching medical examinations or accessing reports. I have literally Mm -hmm. covered cases where this has happened. But this is where we're at. We've got the discovery of the body, and it gets a lot stranger. Like, there's more suspicion here that falls back onto county police. Now, immediately, after the rangers called in the discovery of the body, those two um, rangers had two deputies come who were considered the first on the scene. They belonged to the police force who was involved in the case. They engaged in some very serious misconduct with these remains. 
for an unknown reason, these deputies decided to move the body from the way that it was found, which they knew was a direct violation of protocol, so it's never clear why they decided to do that. And to support that they had intentionally violated the protocol even further, the coroner had actually contacted them when this got called in. Because, I mean, it's not an easy place to get to because it's in, like, the hills and, like, the woods. So, obviously, it's taking a while for, like, official staff to get there. But the coroner called. And he was like, do not touch that body. Don't move anything. Because I have to come to inspect the scene. That's, like, how this works. (laughs) So, what exactly could have compelled these deputies, after they were given explicit instructions, to disrupt a crime scene and deliberately defy orders to tamper with everything. Why would they do that unless there was some cover-up, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm so curious to know who these guys are. Well... Like, their their ages and their, their profiles, like... That's the tricky thing. California has strange privacy laws with some of this stuff, where when it comes to certain news stories, specifically when it involves, like, high-profile cases, a lot of names are actually concealed from official documents for privacy. So I don't know if they're actually ever named in this case, these two deputies. Hmm, okay. But the tampering becomes a massive red herring in the case, as the coroner actually publicly comes out after the whole, like, case settles... And makes a statement and he says, I have never in all of my years ever once seen a crime scene where the remains were touched or moved without the presence of a coroner to assess the scene. The cor- oh the God. county coroner said this. Like a veteran coroner. That's so deliberate. Like something happened here. Also, like that's the number one thing you know about a crime scene is you don't touch anything it's basic without... police work it's basic yeah <laughs> it's like the most like juvenile thing you learn like when you're playing like cops and robbers like you don't touch anything like wow to pick up a body move a body well, i mean well according to the statements of how the body was found it was described to be unclothed which could be for a variety of reasons i don't know if that tells like one story from another to be honest but what's more interesting i think was the description of the body being partially preserved. Some people even said, I think the Rangers, or like some of the forensic reports, um, stated that it looked partially mummified. Now, there are examiners, third party, who have weighed in on this, suggesting that this is a pretty clear indication when you're looking at a partially preserved or mummified body, that it's more than likely that that body was dead for a very long period of time, but that they probably weren't decomposing outside. They were probably being held indoors somewhere. It's a little like Patrice Endress, honestly. I was just thinking that. Oh Same my wavelength, god. yeah. Oh my god. And the but yeah. Why? Like, what's the motivation? Like, unless you've got to stage it so it looks like something else happened. Well, here's where we get into some of the the conflict now. <laughs> We get into this full mess of conflicting reports about Mitrice's head being removed from the body. And what's really haunting is if you remember that original phone call I described to you on the night she went missing, her mother goes, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to wake up to a report where she was wandering in the dark and she ends up with her head chopped off. Literally, literally, it is shaping up that that's what happened to her. Now, here's where the conflict comes from and why you sure as hell cannot trust County. (laughs) When the Rangers first discovered the body and they called it in. They were very clear when they called this in that they're like, the head is removed from the body. Like, the head is severed, it's detached, chopped off. So, of course, the two deputies who arrived on the scene first 
they end up countering that and they insist no the head the head wasn't decapitated at all although when everybody gets there the head is removed so what they claimed happened was they tried to move the body and in the process of moving it without permission don't forget the head just accidentally detached from the rest of the torso from decay this is unbelievable (laughs) get out what what's even like crazier is that by the time the coroner does eventually get there because like i said because it's difficult to the scene is completely packed up every ounce of the remains have already been like funneled into body bags like he there was nothing for him to assess so he just like couldn't definitively rule whether or not like the body was actually found decapitated right away or like what the situation with the head coming off was because again they defied orders so they had compromised the entire scene (laughs) I think just like one of the clearest tells um, is actually the photo evidence from the crime scene because how the body was found is also kind of up for debate. And what happened was the deputies who were first on the scene, they took pictures of the body and they claimed this is how the body was found. Like this, we didn't need the coroner to come inspect because this was the crime scene. (laughs) Those pictures showed that the body was very, very clearly positioned and staged to look a certain way why why in god's name would they do that unless they had something to hide there is no other way that this shakes out i'm sorry i know we're up for like debate and conspiracy but i'm sorry like you don't pick up you don't touch a body and position it unless like you're trying to tell a certain story yeah unless there's an agenda behind it i just i can't make sense even if it's just to protect like even if it's not to protect county even if they're getting paid off to protect somebody else yeah it's it's just such sloppy work too (laughs) yeah yeah i mean you would think people who work in this field would maybe know a thing or two about like how to yeah how to go about this so they don't look like such idiots and like it's so painfully obvious but yeah they they staged that body and we would actually get further confirmation once they bring in a third party forensic analyst on this they're like um (laughs) Guys, there's a few things here that you missed in, like, the staging of this. So one thing that I also want to talk about is the clothing. They did collect the clothing that was found in the area because, again, she's unclothed. But it's never categorized or filed or assessed as evidence in the case, which is strange. Like, they never tested the clothing for any signs of, like, assault. Like, if they could find DNA evidence or if there was, like, residue of drugs. Like, anything that could piece more of the story together. Now, what makes matters even worse, and possibly the most horrific part of the situation, is that as this all unfolds, nobody told Mitrice's mother. She doesn't even find out from police that her daughter is found dead. She finds out from journalists that call her to ask for a statement on the discovery of her daughter's body. Oh my god. That is horror. That is absolute horror that very few people, I think, can, can say that they have experienced in their life. And I put the police at fault for that 100%. Absolutely. She's being like boxed out by police of the story of knowing what's happening. Um, You know, it really just like hit me in my stomach just now. Why was she going out to Malibu? That's the thing. Nobody knows. Who was there? Who was there that, she, I know that she, but I just don't think you go to a random restaurant in Malibu by yourself mm-hmm. just to have a couple cocktails. Like, I think you go out there because there's somebody 
or some opportunity that you think is out there for you, and then perhaps, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't no. know. My gut is telling me that there was somebody watching her in that restaurant that was there to meet her or knew who she oh, was. So sinister. And when all this, when all this started, they paid off the police or something to like take care of it, like get it together. Oh my god! Something feels so strange. I know, like, I know what you mean. It just doesn't like, make sense. Even, even if like we can chalk this up, we're like, well, she was having like a a mental health crisis. She wasn't aware of what she was doing. There is like a strange like kernel of intent behind all of that that made Malibu specific. That maybe made that restaurant specific. Because yeah. why are you driving out that far to like some really affluent? Because this Joffrey's a really nice. I feel it's like a really, I've it's heard a really of that nice restaurant. restaurant. Yeah, really nice. Like you're not. I don't know if it were me and she's looking to become a model or she's interested in, you know, Mm. that line of work. I I can see some scenario where she was told by somebody, some promoter, you come meet me at this place and we'll discuss your career. And she gets out there and she's all sorts of wackadoodle. And Mm -hmm. I don't know something about that is it hit me in my gut just now. Like, why was she out there in the first place? It just doesn't make sense. No, I I know exactly what you mean. I, the police were definitely at fault or involved in some way, shape or form. I think there could be a likely scenario if we're assuming that somebody was paid off to cover something up and it was just like two dumb, like rookie deputies or something. And yeah, they like messed up big time kind of thing. Cause what eventually happens is that there is enough evidence to build a case here that police are involved and the city does not want that. They don't want to, they want to like make their lose credibility in the police is the fear right now. As you can imagine, like, the word of this gets back to the family. Um, but they're not going to go down without a fight. Like, something happened to their daughter, and they want answers. Um, so what they do, like I said, they bring in a third-party forensic anthropologist. They commission this person, an independent person, to come outside. And basically, this is someone who's not city or, like, state-funded, so that's why they wanted them. They're like, we feel that the state and the city could be corrupt, so we need you to come in and assess all of this. They do a complete examination of every aspect of the case, the timeline, and specifically an examination of the actual body. So this forensic anthropologist takes a deeper look into all of the corners of this case, and they find quite a few inconsistencies that I think paint a really grim story here about what happened. For one... It is extremely clear that the police work on this was intentional misconduct. There is no conceivable reason that they would disrupt a crime scene or feel compelled to move a body unless they had ill intent. But she's more focused on some of the existing, like, tangible evidence. So, for one, she looks at the crime scene photos that those deputies took, and they're like, this is how the crime crime scene was found, like how her body was found. (laughs) And she spots something really specific that they missed. The skull had been placed right above the top of the torso, like where it would be normally if the body was fully intact, yeah. which suggests that the head was already removed. And then they picked up that skull and moved it in front of the torso for whatever reason. It is abundantly clear to her, the examiner, that this was intentionally placed there because it is missing neck bones. The head was already detached. Oh my God. Meaning that by the time the deputies got there, the head was already somewhere else. It was severed. And they're literally reconstructing a body for a picture. That is some dark shit. Second time I'm earning shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had to. Is it Write not, it though? I know. I was like, where are my notes? What are we at? That is so dark. It's so dark. It's feeling more and more like they 
are doing this on behalf of someone else. Like some something had to happen. Come on. Yeah. Well, the mani- manipulation of the body was disturbing for sure, but there's something that's even stranger here. So from the posi- she can also tell that the body was staged from the position of the arms. They're not in a natural position in the examiner's opinion for a person who had naturally like died or passed away, like just laying down or like collapsing. They actually suggested from the way that they're posed since they're in like a flexed position that not only was the head placed above the torso, but that they had manipulated the actual torso to make it look like it was like she had fallen down. Stop. Like real, real insidious, literally playing with a body. So that is deeply disturbing and paints a very clear picture that somebody somehow is culpable for this. So as she's examining the skull a bit further, this is a really interesting tell that I, I think only a person who you know is highly skilled in forensics would have an eye for this. But she notices something really telling. There is a pinkish tint to her teeth all over her mouth, which this examiner says is a very clear sign of someone who has been violently strangled to death. Because when you're violently strangled, your throat gets cut up pretty bad and you start to cough up blood, which usually when you review bodies, even after they've decomposed, they have a pink tint on the teeth. However, the only way to definitively prove whether or not somebody was strangled to death is to examine the neck bones once they've decomposed. The neck bones, which are conveniently missing and were never found at the crime scene. Are you not sick? Like, come on. I'm so... Oh, my God. So, I, I mean, do you have anything else to say about it? I just feel like it's no, so painfully say, obvious. <laughs> it's so painfully obvious. And also, like, you know that they're not going to, like, test the body. Like, the coroner's not going to test the body and now and confirm that there's blood on the teeth. Like, we're so far past that. Well, so uh, I think eventually this is all building up to, like, a pretty compelling case against the police, which is why this, like I said, this comes into the interest of the state and the city to settle this. So all of these things considered, this is suggestive to her that there is a pretty serious case on their hands that the body was tampered with and deliberately staged for whatever reason, and the lawyers can build their story around that. Now, as unbelievable as these discoveries were, (laughs) when the word gets back to the family... Those attorneys come hard for the police because they would end up filing, I think, two separate major lawsuits. And I think before that, they had actually filed six smaller lawsuits against this this specific station, talking about, like, negligence, and they're going to build a story and a case suggesting that someone had darker intentions that need to be investigated here. Maitreese did not die without someone else's hand in it. Now, don't forget, the press has already grabbed onto the story, so this is a pretty damning picture for those officers, and it's very much in the county's interest to keep the story quiet. So the city does approach the family, where allegedly we'll never have full confirmation they were able to settle both lawsuits in exchange for the family's discretion for something close to a million dollars. In addition to the settlement, the statute of limitations would run out in just a few years following the case. So whatever happened to Mitrice Richardson is officially closed. But this story is still very much alive, I would say, in the world of true crime and unsolved and insidious cases, because many don't believe that what happened to her is an open and closed situation where she just suffered a psychotic break, wandered off into the woods, and just died. There are too many points of secrecy and tampering and deliberate manipulation to suggest 
that someone else was involved. You know, somebody was covering for somebody. Somebody knew something. But as it stands today, the case is completely closed, leaving everyone with the haunting question, what really happened to Mitrice Richardson? (sighs) Wow. (laughs) I, like, want to clap after that. That was really, really compelling. Oh, my God. I'm, like... Oh, now my head is spinning because I'm like thinking about the officer that walked out when she left. And I'm like, is there an officer that was perhaps involved in like a trafficking mm-hmm. thing? That's where I was going to. And then we're so on the same yeah. wavelength because that was the exact yeah, conspiracy yeah, yeah. I was building. And like, did he ha- like. <sighs> it could be a situation God, where like it, cop it, protects cop kind of thing. Yeah. Like he totally like two rookies that. He's, you know, he's largely in charge of and he has power over and he's like, you're going to do this and you're going to you're going to lose your job if you don't do this or go to jail. You know, I'll make you culpable, make them accessories somehow. Oh, my God. So easy to manipulate. I mean, (sighs) I so I don't have theories on this case because I feel like so much of it is like up in the air and we've already kind of discussed some of the avenues. If I was to piece together a through line, I would say that final footage of her leaving which we've never seen again. This is We don't even know if that's true, but the final footage, allegedly, of her leaving through the front door and the cop exiting, possibly a shady cop who was involved in some trafficking scheme, maybe out of state, maybe in Vegas. She's not with it. You know what I mean? So maybe she's, like, kind of roaming around and he's kind of softly, like, watching out for her through the morning. And then eventually, somehow she, like, rapidly disappears from the last known location, like... The window is very short, but they can't find her. The trace is gone. She ends up in Vegas as an escort or in a trafficking situation. Something even more insidious happened. She dies. Maybe through strangulation. A violent client. Something like that. And now this cop has to figure out what to do with the body. The body is kept indoors for a period of months as he develops the plan. Okay, she was last seen and they searched for her in the woods. I'm going to drive out and get to the hills and cart this body with me and place it in the woods. That's exactly (laughs) what I was thinking. I mean, I just don't know how else. I don't know how you have 70 people. Come on. See somebody. Yeah. 70. Like if you have one or two or three or four or five, that's one thing. (laughs) 70 people. Who claimed to have seen her? Did you see that fly buzz past me? Sorry, father. Yes. <laughs> also an omen. It's an orb, um, including her own father. That biological father part is so trippy. Yeah, yeah. I again, like, it's crazy because I was even willing to like discredit that piece of it too because I was, I was allowing grief to like play into it. I'm like, you see things and you want to see things when you're grieving, but like you said, seventy yeah. people. It's hard to refute. I I guess the one part that I'm tripped up about mm-hmm. is the guy from KTLA that saw her at like 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. Like, does he call? Okay, so here's what I was thinking. Yeah. Maybe the the if we're theorizing there's this bad cop in the mix, mm-hmm. he gets they get the call after the guy from KTLA sees her and He's like, oh, God, like this this woman again. We had to deal with her last night. Let me go out and I'll, I'll go get her. Mm-hmm. And then that's when he called somebody who's involved in a trafficking thing and is like, hey, I got somebody that 
like they seemingly have no ties. Oh my god. They have no they don't have any ID on them. Yes. It'll be easy. Oh my god. I hate that. I hate that so much. And that's much. so incredibly plausible is the thing. Have you seen Okay, I hate that I keep I always um reference movies but have you seen the joaquin phoenix movie called you were never really there no what is that is that old it's a it's a no it's it's pretty recent but it's a trafficking movie and it's about uh corruption within new york city where uh law enforcement is in on a trafficking ring that's happening on the upper east side and a senator's daughter goes missing, and she's been trafficked. Really? No, I've never heard of yes. that. That sounds so interesting, And it's interesting, giving me though. chills because it's reminding me just how much, like, that's not a, like, uh, that's not a far cry from what could have happened. Like, not at cops, all. bad cops get involved in corrupted stuff all the time. Like, just that little bit of power that they now have that they start associating themselves with people that are doing, you know, shady. Sorry. One minute, 52 seconds. I was like, thank you. Thank you for my notes. (laughs) Um, These two can't stop swearing. (laughs) Mouths of a sailor. (laughs) No, Um, I know what you mean though. It's like, it's a weird, it's an interesting and complicated dynamic with city cops. I think in some instances, Yeah, I know these are technically like, county but they're all all cops are county in my mind um because they're they're not technically paid enough in some instances to live comfortably in certain cities specifically new york and los angeles i've covered cases in the past with um oh god i'm really forgetting his name but he's considered new york city's most corrupt police officer in the history of the city because back in the 80s that was the problem he could not afford to live in the city and once you're you have a little bit of power but also you have these connections and this awareness of different gangs different trafficking rings it's kind of enticing because it's a mutual thing like the trafficking ring or the drug ring wants a cop someone on the inside who can like funnel them inventory people being inventory and they get a big kickback i mean i don't think it's off the table and it's that far-fetched to think something like that especially with someone as vulnerable and confused as my trees that could have happened and just from how much they did not disclose to the mom and kept her at arm's length, like I hope those and, I hope and, that officer knowing, sits with that on his shoulders till the day he dies. I know, I I hope so too because I think this was a really easy target because they knew they knew that this girl, my Therese, was closer with her great grandmother who's ninety years old mm-hmm. than she was with her own mother, so. Or at least what they could piece together from her state of mind. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, right. So it just, it, to me, that's, she, my Therese feels like such an easy target here. And if she, I'm imagining, was dressed a certain way to, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not look as put together, maybe look a little bit, you know, more seductive or whatever, just based on her line of work. Like, I don't know. I just, she seems like an easy target. Well, something's dawning on me right now as you're saying this, is that maybe... If this story is aligning, leaving the phone and the wallet in the car was intentionally part of this plan because... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Location data can't be tracked. If that phone is all the way with a car that's 12 miles away, like in a towed car, same thing if like she's never going to be found with her actual ID on her. Like, 
That seems like a deliberate setup for a plan that would be unfolding in the next couple of hours with just a few phone calls from officer to officer or officer to a ring of people. Yeah. I think I think something happened. I guess the only the only hole in this would be she gets to LA, mm-hmm. I mean uh Las Vegas yeah. and she's just not like I guess she's not fighting back. Like she's not like somebody help me. And maybe that's because she's like I I mean I think trafficking rings. I mean they keep you They've got ways to keep people quiet and intimidated. I mean exactly. they can do yeah. a lot of a lot of stuff to like because it seems like people i mean if any of those sightings were credible specifically i'm thinking of the friend in the casino her high school friend or college friend who was like oh my god that's my trice saw her she sees them her eyes widen she turns in the other direction and runs that's somebody who's like under someone's thumb and they're being threatened yeah. with like if you tell anybody who you are i'm gonna kill you or i'm gonna kill your family yeah you know like people use a lot of things to like manipulate yeah. victims and i think what makes my tree so particularly vulnerable is because there was a uh, lack of self-confidence there that I guess the tip off was that rejection from that girl, but she's in such a vulnerable state at this moment that whoever took her could very easily, I can literally picture it's giving me chills being like, nobody's coming to find you. Nobody cares about you. Why were you even there by yourself at this restaurant? You're a wacko. Nobody can take care of you. Your only option is me. Could be Stockholm Syndrome, where she's manipulated yeah. into believing that her attacker, like you're saying, is the only person who can care for her. Yeah. That's that's like a long tail game, too, where it takes it takes a while. Usually people who are captive or held um, under someone's possession for years develop that, like a bizarre yeah. attachment to their captor. Totally. Stu. <sighs> That's a heavy one, is it not? But is that not fascinating? Heavy. Fascinating. I really, oh my gosh, Creepers and you, Silas. Like, if you watch uh, You Were Never Really There, jeez, mm. I always botch this, the name of this movie. I think it's You Were Never Really There, You're Never Really Here. It's but... a long movie title, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> but this... Mm. Ooh, it, like, sheds this a lot of light, wait, kind of, on... With... Yeah, it it does because it will remind you that this is happening under our like noses all the time. This is happening to vulnerable people, and it just oh, oh I, my I God. know what you mean. I I do think something went on here, and I know the case is closed. I know the family has settled it, and it's in everyone's interests, I guess, to like stay quiet about it. But I encourage other people who cover cases like this to keep talking about this story. I've covered it like a year ago, but. It's it's a really interesting and obvious case to me. So I think the story deserves to be told over and over, even though nothing can probably come from it at this point, because in some small way, talking about it and like relaying the truth of what happened here feels like a piece of justice. That's what I was saying at the beginning. I was yeah. like, this is a case that feels removed from the justice that it deserves. Yeah. And I think when you talk about trafficking, it... I think that's the issue is that most of us bop around life, not ever thinking about it or not thinking that there could possibly be somebody like within mere, you know, feet from me that's Mm -hmm. under the thumb of someone and they're just being like, it's happening all around, which is so crazy. So I think just even talking about this case 
it's reminding me, it's sobering for me to remember that if I see somebody that I think might be in a vulnerable state uh, to take care of them or try to get them help, or B, if I think I see somebody and it looks off, mm-hmm. or there's a relationship that looks off, to, to speak up and say something. Cause you have to. You could save somebody like my my Therese, like that's a really good point i think there were several points in the story where if somebody had just intervened um or i guess they kind of tried to in some way this is a strange case where like the people that are supposed to protect you from these things could have very well have been the perpetrators the police that's the that's the insidious part about it but i'm happy that we covered it thank you again for sitting Mm -hmm. through it because i know that was a lot to get through creepers we love you i really enjoyed (laughs) it yes Well, we will circle back next Friday. We'll have another fresh episode of Creep Time, the podcast. Make sure that you are subscribed on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you're listening. And we're going to see you guys again soon. Should we say goodbye? Are you getting paid off by Jeff Bezos? (laughs) (laughs) Just to end on a full corrupt theory. (laughs) That's the the meta version of all that I'm talking about. You can see who's really got oh, their, Lord. who's lining my pockets. <laughs> well, I'm, I think I might title this episode Can't Trust County, to be honest. Can't Trust County. <laughs> the Mitrice Richardson story, because they are, they are something else. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Should we do it, Stu? Shall we say farewell? Yeah. Farewell. Bye, everybody. Bye, creepers. <laughs> <laughs>